You think I can get there before 129? Um, probably not. What's at 129? Well, I had a project doing since Okay. This is the story of the wrongful conviction of Brendan Dassey. Over the next seven episodes, we re-examine and explore the influences at the heart of this profound miscarriage of justice. Welcome to The Sixth Hour. four years. I've spent hours, days at a time, buried under the weight of the wrongful conviction of a Mishkot High special ed student who had gone to school on February the 27th, 2006, as an innocent 16-year-old kid, only to be catapulted into adulthood at the hands of local law enforcement when he left as a suspect in one of Wisconsin's most notorious criminal investigations. This miscarriage of justice is Brendan's story. Uh, we know uh, in terms of Brendan Dassey's appeals have been exhausted in the Supreme Court. So let's talk about Stephen Avery for a minute. Although we, you should note that Brendan still has options. What are those options? He, he's never filed a what's called a 97406, what a, a post-conviction motion. So after your direct appeal is done, you can still come back on a what's called a collateral. It used to be state habeas corpus. So it's similar to the federal process, but it's in the state With what corpus. kinds of arguments? Newly discovered evidence. Um, and possibly ineffective assistance of counsel when you have that. But you can go back to the state trial court, is, is Jerry's point, and uh, that, that remains open to Brendan. And Avery. Fourteen years and five months ago, Brendan Dassey's life stopped. His mind and memory frozen in time. And now, now he waits for justice to come knocking at his cell door and send him back into the world. His conviction and interaction with law enforcement was shaped entirely by disability. This is not merely supposition. There is qualitative and quantitative analysis and discourse carried out by Professor Michelle Levine and Dr Sally Miles that testifies to that. What Uyghur, Fassbender, Kaczynski and others did to Brendan is beyond imagining. But imagine we must. Contending with 2,065 questions over three interrogations, and that's excluding the four other interrogations that actually took place. Brendan was pummeled. Pummeled by one question every nine to ten seconds. 
the investigator simply refused to leave him alone. And he was barely 16 years of age. Just a kid. But we know the Wisconsin judicial process cares little for kids. This December will be five years since the world woke to an invitation by Laura Riccardi and Maura Demos to step into Brendan's life of maligned anonymity. Spurring the outraged millions, transforming people into changemakers, activists, informers, armchair fact-finders, on par with the late Michelle McNamara. The commitment to Brendan's fight has not dulled. It is a growing, heaving body of people, robust and vocal, in support, searching out news of Brendan from pockets of the globe including Mongolia, Bermuda, France, Switzerland, the UK, New Zealand, Australia, Wisconsin, and a litany of countries where supporters are aggrieved at the deplorable treatment of a young 16-year-old child with obviously diminished capacities and impairments whose most basic human and constitutional rights were violated by the majority of adults he encountered throughout the calamity of his conviction. People who are innocent don't confess. The defendant confessed because he was guilty, because he did it. Hmm. Note. There is no objection coming from the mute Fremgen or Edelstein. The words innocent people do not confess linger long in the air as the jury retires for deliberation. But we know, we know peer-reviewed legal and psychological research clearly demonstrates that innocent people do confess. Unlike the disingenuous pleadings to the Dassey jury, there is a bulging body of work supported by data and science that validates how interrogation tactics, even those coercive in nature and deemed constitutionally permissible, like those used on Brennan Dassey, can sway juveniles and intellectually impaired people to act against their own self-interest, to inculpate themselves in crimes they can't even describe. The National Registry of Exonerations lists 2,661 exonerations since 1989, but this figure is in no way indicative of the breadth and depth of this issue. It is but a joyless representation of those who have successfully fought the system and prevailed, but it amounts to more than 23,770 years not lost but aggressively stolen from innocent people. And 292 of those involved a false confession. But it doesn't stop there. 36% of those who falsely confessed were under 18 years of age. And 70% of those reported an intellectual disability or mental illness. The system has failed. Perhaps it was designed to fail. 
But the idea of community is weakened when the most vulnerable among us is offered up as a sacrificial lamb. Judge Rovner in her Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals on Bonk dissent wrote, Studies confirm that jurors tend to have hard-to-dislodge beliefs that a suspect who was innocent could not be manipulated into confessing. And in fact, this false notion is precisely what the state implored the jurors in Dassey's trial to believe, arguing in closing that people who are innocent don't confess. We know, however, that this statement is unequivocally incorrect. Innocent people do in fact confess, and they do so with shocking regularity. But the fault lies not only with Fallon in this instance, but with Brendan's timid trial counsel, and the courts too. Was it small-town judicial ignorance, or a deceptive ploy to dupe the jury? A jury fattened on media soundbites? unethical press conferences, social bias and pizza. There was conveniently an absence of expert testimony and a very, very special prosecutor indeed. Breaking news, a Wisconsin district attorney accused of sexting a domestic violence victim could soon be forced out of the job. Good evening, I'm Kathy Michael. And I'm Toya Washington. Governor Jim Doyle says he's appalled by Ken Kratz's behavior. 12 News' Jason Newton is live in Madison. Who would go on to face professional, personal and legal consequences for sexual misconduct and abuse of prescription medication? Mr. Kratz would be the Count Olaf of making a murderer, uttering simultaneously his pity for Brendan and then holding court at the Seventh Circuit Court in Chicago, addressing the media after oral arguments, compelling Stephen Drizzen to comment on the media circus that ensued. Federal court is a sanctuary of sorts, he said, and that Kratz's actions had soiled the process just as they had on March the 2nd, 2006, when he held a press conference that was more trial-opening statement than press briefing, revealing gory, unfounded allegations that were both inflammatory and prejudicial, causing many to ask whether this was in fact a violation of Wisconsin's rules of professional conduct for prosecutors while warning children under the age of 15 not to watch or listen. He made no such admonition for those who might be prospective jurors for Brennan Dassey. The presumption of innocence is a fundamental right, and it's actually an international human right under the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 11. Yet it was another right denied to the innocent Brendan. Every scene of the past 14 years has featured its own villain. But let's not forget Miranda and the failure of the courts. In the words of Professor Michelle Levine, Wiegert and Fassbender don't exist the day the courts say that's enough. But they haven't. 
haven't exhausted the legal roadmap of the state courts in search of relief. Brendan's team embarked on a habeas journey, navigating the procedural jigsaw that is the federal appellate process and the restrictive EDPA statute. Now, EDPA Unpacked is the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, courtesy of the Clinton administration, a knee-jerk legislation and widely acknowledged as one of the worst statutes signed into law by any president. At the heart of this statute is a provision that even when a state court misapplies the Constitution, a defendant cannot necessarily have their day in federal court. Rather, that the defendant must prove that the state court's decision was, contrary to what the Supreme Court has determined, is clearly established federal law, or that the decision was an unreasonable application of it. Now, this restrictive law gutted the federal writ of habeas corpus. And the habeas corpus is a fundamental instrument not to determine the guilt or innocence of a prisoner, but to test the legality of a prisoner's detention. And it empowers a federal judge the authority to decide if a prisoner is being held unlawfully and order his release. Ultimately, EDPA would gut Brendan's petition with finality trumping common sense and fairness. So what about the question of Brendan's innocence? As Seth Waxman, Brendan's co-counsel, and the 41st Solicitor General of the United States commented at Brennan's clemency press briefing. I have never had a case that has troubled me more than this case, that has kept me awake at night, that makes me anxious and sad. Um, And that's because I know that Brendan Dassey is innocent. And I know that no judge, not the state trial judge, not the state court of appeals judges, not the federal district judge, not any of the judges on on the Seventh Circuit, including the four judges sitting on bonk who denied his petition, and not a single justice on the Supreme Court of the United States thinks otherwise. I don't, no judge has ever written that they thought that might that Brendan Dassey was not innocent. That isn't the question that they What redress is available to those with claims of actual innocence in the state of Wisconsin? Due to the arbitrary criteria for filing clemency, the wrongfully convicted can, like Brendan, seek relief via habeas corpus. The Chief Judge of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, Judge Diane Wood, wrote for the Notre Dame Law Review, innocence is the ultimate question in any criminal case. But it wasn't in Brendan's, and it's not in so many others. And with more than 18,000 petitions for habeas corpus filed in federal court by state prisoners each year, and less than 3% being successful, Brendan Dassey in August 2016 had been given a step up out of the foxhole by Judge Duffin, who had granted Brendan's habeas petition, 
overturning his conviction. Professor Marcos shared, once somebody looked at it closely from outside the criminal justice system, the case fell apart. Who is to know whether it was the impact of making a murderer or the judicial poise of Judge Duffin that determined the initial outcome of Brendan's habeas? But we can safely be thankful for both, for it finally gave hope to Brendan and his family after nine years of misguided scorn. However, history tells us, with bruised and stout heart, that when Wisconsin Attorney General Brad Schimmel, fueled by special interest groups and political bigotry, pursued Brendan through the appellate courts, emboldened by archaic rules and technicalities, that Brendan's tenuous grasp on freedom was lost. So I have to wonder, how robust is Governor Evers' commitment to criminal justice reform? Could Wisconsin create a Conviction Integrity Review Unit? It doesn't replace the authority of the courts in a jurisdiction. And its workings aren't governed by court rules of procedure. But it does investigate claims of actual innocence. Or the Governor could simply expand the clemency criteria. But if you speak of redemption and you speak of mercy, you cannot marginalise those who benefit by review. If you embrace your oath of office, be bold and be just. In a time of renewal across the United States, let it no longer be that Brendan's future remains dependent on the policies of disgraced former prosecutors and attorney generals more concerned by the political context and hierarchy of the state capital. In previous episodes, I've discussed the deliberate action of Uyghur and Fassbender and their feigned and apathetic acknowledgement of Brennan's impairments. They had spoken with the Dean of Mishkot High before speaking with Brendan. They had reviewed Brendan's previous interactions with their colleagues before they stepped into the morning of February the 27th. They were fully apprised of Brendan's vulnerabilities. They knew this child had never been in trouble and was considered generally a quieter kid. Yet they didn't stop. They didn't stop when Brendan asked how to spell rack. They didn't care. In fact, they gave Brendan a competency test designed for six-year-olds. They knew he functioned at a much lower level than his actual age. But still they persisted, and as Wiegert preferred and testified, without a parent or lawyer present. Interestingly, they sought the permission of the school to speak with Brendan, but not his mother. And let's not forget Wiegert's reading of Miranda. Concerningly different each time, but inherently grotesque and misleading to tell a child, we have no way of getting you a lawyer. What? At no time did they seek to confirm that Brendan knew his rights under Miranda, and they most certainly did not impart to Brendan the actual reading of Miranda 
you have the right to an attorney. I often wonder, is Miranda still in play? Or how about Len, who found himself an entry in the Urban Dictionary? When your lawyer works against you and does not defend your innocence. Oh shit, I've been Len Kaczynski'd. My public defender is getting me to plead guilty when I didn't do it. Len's notoriety has somewhat expanded as his impersonation of kitty cats and the harassment of a female colleague most recently saw a Wisconsin appeals court uphold a ruling that he violated a harassment restraining order against him. His fall from grace continues. Now while we know of O'Kelly, little is known of Ralph Stregolowski. Brendan's first court-appointed lawyer. Did you know that on the day of Brendan's initial appearance, he waived Brendan's right to a preliminary hearing? Stating to the court, in my opinion, putting that before the judge and families would be very horrible and not fruitful in any ways. He means the Harbach family, surely. But wait, isn't he defending under the presumption of innocence? A few hours after waiving this pivotal right that Brennan was fully entitled to, he removed himself from the case, learning that he was a distant relative of Miss Hulbuck's. Hmm. Miss Hulbuck, tragically, had been allegedly killed four months earlier. But he was only discovering this now, the biggest case in Wisconsin, And he was only discovering this now? Coincidence or legal manoeuvre? As recalled by Jerry Booting, counsel for Stephen Avery at the time, he had approached Len Kaczynski to inform him of this and to implore him to file a motion to get the preliminary hearing back. But hey, it was Kaczynski, he worked for the state and that was never going to happen. I referenced the monstrous cast of characters Brendan has encountered throughout this travesty, both in a legal sense and undoubtedly throughout the life of his incarceration. Yet he remains gentle, kind and enduringly humble in spite of those who would create a beastly avatar of a young man that simply doesn't exist. So where to now for Brendan? Surely, with the calibre of experts, including those four federal judges who supported Brendan's fight for justice and freedom, surely with the global-sized microscope that has revealed and articulated not only the involuntariness of Brendan's confession, but its indisputable unreliability, that relief is due, long due, 14 years and 5 months too long due. Legal avenues Brendan may travel down could include a motion for post-conviction relief, seeking remedy back in Wisconsin State Court, or as reported by lawandcrime.com, Brendan could be entitled to file another habeas corpus petition after petitioning the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals for permission 
If permission were granted, he could refile his case with the Federal District Court for the Eastern District of Wisconsin. That's so not easy to say. Is this a valid path to relief or or is it just conjecture? I don't know. But what we do know for certain from the statement released by Northwestern in response to the Wisconsin Pardon Advisory Board's rejection of Brennan's clemency petition is this from Laura Narider. We will continue to work respectfully but relentlessly towards the day when this governor recognises in Brennan Dassey the gentle, cheerful and kind human being whom we have known for 12 years. A good teacher never forgets his vulnerable students. A good governor never forgets his most vulnerable citizens. But what can we do as individuals and as a collective, united in common purpose and care? Borrowing from the words of American poet, songwriter and singer Patti Smith, when addressing the audience at the Voices for Justice rally in Little Rock, Arkansas, when raising awareness for the West Memphis Three. It's the small things. We can make phone calls, write letters, pray, give money, send love. Whatever we can do, each small thing connects to make a great big thing. And that big thing is to bring those boys back home. Email your support to the governor. Flood social media platforms with the facts of Brendan's case. Write letters. Be instructive. Help to inform others of this egregious injustice. Write to Brendan. Reach out. Create another portal to the outside world for him. Invite him into your world where freedom adds a colour he can only find in memory and never, ever give up. Over the course of the podcast, I have asked each guest what words they would leave for those who support Brendan. Let's take a listen. have faith in you know people like Laura Laura and Steve that are really fighting daily and the other other folks involved um, that the, the fight is not over um, until the decision's corrected so have some hope keep talking about it keep his name at the forefront and uh, you know and don't settle for anything less than than impacting change. those people listening, to those people who um, are outraged by Brendan Dassey's conviction, you gotta, you gotta keep putting pressure on um, the governor or, you know, if, if, if putting pressure is not your thing, um, creating media conversations and outlets and web pages, petitions, you know, talking to journalists, um, you know, when a book comes out about the case, uh, buying the book, you know, anything to keep Brendan's case alive. Letters to the editor, uh, letters to the lawyers, uh, support, uh, contributions to websites that uh, describe, discuss his case, anything to keep this case alive and to remind the world 
that you believe he's an innocent man, really a boy at the time, wrongly convicted, who should be released immediately because the conviction was based on tainted, flawed, and unreliable evidence. Uh, there's a tendency for a lot of people to lose interest in these types of cases after they're no longer in the headlines or, you know, part of a phenomenon like the Making a Murderer docu-series. So I would just encourage all of Brendan's supporters to keep the fire alive and to keep reminding the world of this horrible injustice, which someday has to be reversed. Don't give up. Don't give up. Never say never. You know, you don't know. You don't know how things are gonna how things are gonna turn out, and you have to just keep fighting. You just do. Absolutely. There's no giving up. No, that's that's not an option. That's that's just that's not an option. And because if you do, you know what? I think his trial lawyers gave up. Yes. And you see where that landed. You know, Brendan is a symbol. He's a symbol of the things that go wrong. He's not the only child who is treated that way, who is subjected to the read technique and other things. But that said, he's also a person. Uh, and he's also someone who sits in prison needlessly. Uh, and that as much as we want to care about systems and broad groups of people, this is a time too when we have a lot to learn by looking at one person uh, and learning from what went wrong and more than anything, fixing what went wrong. When language is weaponized, false confessions ensue. When a child is exposed to the coercive workings of the read technique, compounding their inability to linguistically cope with the situation unfolding around them, a false confession is inevitable. But Brendan Dassey's story can be changed, his path forward rewritten. As this series comes to a close, I extend my thanks to Dave Thompson, Dr. Richard Leo, Michael Ciccini, Professor Michelle Levine, and Professor Mark Osler for generously sharing their expertise and time and joining me in unpacking the forces at play that helped to shape the wrongful conviction of Brendan Dassey. And I thank you for not forgetting Brendan. The rate of wrongful convictions in the United States is estimated to fall somewhere between 2 and 10%. In the heaving throngs of more than 2.3 million incarcerated souls, that figure is between 46,000 and 230,000 people who, as you listen to me, are wrongfully charged or convicted. The fight must continue because truth alone will not bring Brendan home. We all have to keep saying Brendan Dassey's name.
queer people in the world. My name is Brendan Dassey. I am writing to let you know that I am innocent of the rape and murder of Teresa Halbach. I was interrogated by the police when I was 16 years old. The investigators kept telling me over and over they knew I was involved. They also told me if I just said I was involved, they would help me and that I wouldn't get in trouble. I trusted them. I told them a lot of things that weren't true that day. I thought I would go back to school afterwards, but they arrested me. I haven't been free since that day. I've missed out on high school, graduation, and the chance to get a girlfriend or a job. My brothers have gotten married and had children. I wish I could have a family someday too. I am innocent of the rape and murder of Teresa Halbach. Please help me if you can. Sincerely, Brendan Dassey.